leftovers, or the DMV, or house cleaning, or Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. We're prohibited by law. T plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox Internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details. From the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West. To Chamberlain, he's got it! Jerry West made it from the other side of the mid-court strike! To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. From a time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe. From way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron. For three for the win! Yes! LeBron James! And rings were handed out like candy. Here's Jordan! It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty. I'm your host, Garrett Bougay, and uh, I've got a special announcement for all of you listening. I now officially have a new co-host on the pod, and this man has, uh, has been a regular on the program as of late. Um, you know, as soon as he uh, he came on, he was one of the few that actually enjoyed the process, and uh, you know, so he's uh, he's actually requested to come back on more frequently, and uh, we have both come to the mutual decision to have him be the new co-host of the program. His name is Corbin Ford. Thanks so much for coming on, and of course, thanks so much for uh, you know committing to to the future of the Duncan Dynasty podcast. Thank you. The pleasure, honestly, it's all mine. I love the show. Love listening and having conversations, you know, on Twitter and stuff outside of it. This is a blast, and I'm just honored to be on that. Have some fun talking hoops. That's nothing better for me. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, last time you were on, we started uh, getting into our classic series pods, and we did the 84 Eastern Conference first-round matchup between the Pistons and the Knicks. And uh, this week, we've got another series to bring you. And that is the 1995 Western Conference Finals between the San Antonio Spurs and the Houston Rockets. And uh, first off, Corbin, I don't know what you had heard heading into this series, you know, kind of what had been the talk. But uh, from from my perspective, I knew it was a battle between, you know, two all-time great centers in David Robinson and Hakeem Olajuwon. And, uh, you know, the, the interesting and, and fun thing for me was not only realizing, okay, it's a battle of these two giants of the game, but also both of these teams are really fascinating and great in their own right. Oh, yes, they really were. That was one thing that heading into this series, like you said, background information, I'd only watch parts of games and really was just aware of Elijah Wan kind of being miffed at not getting the MVP and just taking David Robinson apart. And 
I mean, they were a team, and you're right, even with the adjustments and everything that was done, I'm excited to dive into it, because you're right, there was a lot more nuance to the series, and a lot more of a cat-and-mouse game, and two tacticians at work, and the players, it was a lot of um, inner drama, I mean, they said those teams had played, I think, midway through game three, it already had combined nine times, so it wasn't like they didn't know anything about each other, they were front and back, it was just a matter of effort and, and monster performances down the stretch. Yeah, so just to give some background information on these teams, the Spurs that season, really impressive team, went 62-20, and so therefore had the home court advantage in this series. They were 5th in offensive rating, 5th in defensive rating, and in the first two rounds of the playoffs, they defeated the Denver Nuggets in round one, three games to zero. And then in the conference semis, they defeated the Lakers four games to two, And then the Houston Rockets, of course, they were the defending champions, but didn't have that great of a regular season. Went 47-35, and traded for Clyde Drexler about halfway through the year. They uh, were 7th in the NBA in offense and 12th in defense. They defeated the Utah Jazz three games to two in round one, and then went the full distance against Phoenix as well and won coming back from 3-1 down in that series to win 4-3. So, uh, you know, uh, a matchup of, of two teams that, uh, you know, really the, the Spurs, you, you had to expect, would, uh, would have the advantage. But Houston had already knocked off a couple of great teams in the prior rounds and had two stars in the likes of Elijah Wan and Drexler. Oh, yeah, it was a lot. I mean, the fact that Houston was the sleeper team coming in, because you're right, San Antonio was dominant all throughout, and it took a while for Houston to kind of find their way. They did have that dissension with... Um, you know, getting um, Clyde Drexler and losing Vernon Maxwell, and I mean, I'm sure we can even address that, how that kind of lingered as far as um, more of the chemistry, but yeah, then they went through literally the gamut (laughs) playing in the playoffs where they played the top three teams between Utah, Phoenix, and San Antonio, Um, you know, I mean, Utah and Phoenix to get to San Antonio, and yeah, it was the hard hard knock team because going to seven, going to six with the Jazz, um, going to seven with the Suns, I mean, nothing was easy for sure. And now you're coming up against a team that, I mean, the Spurs all season long, you know, best record. You know, you already went over there just pristine ratings offensively and and very solid and defensively as well. And yeah, it was a, it was a real sense of South make fights for sure, but also just um, I, I, the, the storylines couldn't be any more different between the two teams. Yeah, and and this was also at a time in the NBA where teams might match up uh, more than what uh, what teams do now within division. You know, in in 2020, you'll see teams play a maximum of four times in the regular season, but these two teams met up six times in the season series, and San Antonio won five of the six. Of course, a few of those played prior to the Rockets acquiring Drexler. Uh, But, uh, yeah, we, uh, you know, Houston, again, as you mentioned, due to that them struggling to get through just those first two rounds were playing their 11th game in 20 days heading into that game one and also on the road so uh it uh you know was a a tough task and and david robinson they you know they posted this uh, uh this graphic at the beginning of the game but robinson's numbers through the first two rounds of the playoffs 26.3 points 12.7 rebounds and 2.9 blocks per ball game Wow. Yeah, he was a dominant beast. Uh, a monster in transition, fit perfectly with the Spurs game. I know i talk about that. I know, you know, his, his had a very solid jump shot, very good face-up game 
series, but it was different watching him play in the 99 finals and the 2003 finals and watching him, you know, in his actual prime in 94, 95. And yeah, I mean, there wasn't a single matchup that could stop him. There was no kryptonite for Robinson. You know, it was it was the neighborhood, as they said a lot back in the day. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the Spurs, right off the bat at the beginning, you know, to, to, to kick off this game one, the Spurs, just a terrific transition team. You know, the fact that they had David Robinson and Dennis Rodman to, to handle the boards, they just basically told uh, the likes of Vinny Del Negro and Sean Elliott to just run the floor, leak out, because those two guys can get every board. Yeah, and what was even funny, watching, like you said, going again when it was the power forwards, Dennis Rodman and Jerry. Now, Dennis Rodman had some miscues, and he's a whole other story here, but his ability not only take the ball off the glass, but advance it into the front court at like breakneck speed, limited the amount of um, possession that'd be slowed down for the Spurs. Where you know anyone outside of Robert Robinson could grab the ball and head up court. I was very much impressed with how many times Robin did that over the course of the series. And you know he had some bad passes or some where he'd run full speed, you know, advance it and then pass it off to the point guard and then go into their free flowing action really quickly. But that increase the pace that much more because it wasn't just outlet get the ball to the point guard it's okay you know sean elliott can grab and go everyone else filled the lanes avery, avery johnson do the same and, and like you said that really fit their identity and made them that much more powerful because yes rodman wasn't taking the ball coast to coast i mean not not when he should have anyway but just by advancing and putting the pressure on the defense regardless it didn't matter who got it and and that was something that for me to see was like wow that's their philosophy through and through you know Yep, and in the half-court game, the Spurs relied, especially in Game 1, on that Avery Johnson-David Robinson pick-and-roll on the right-hand side. Johnson, of course, a, a left-handed player. And, and speaking of Avery Johnson, you know, I was looking over his career statistics, and this was really the peak of Avery Johnson's career, averaging around, you know, 13 points and, and 9-plus assists. And, you know, the, the Rockets initially on that action were just treating him like a complete non-shooter, like a lot of teams would treat Rajon Rondo when he was playing for the Celtics. And, and Johnson, for the most part, you know, I think made really good decisions of, of when to shoot, when to pass. And, and when he got that wide-open 15-footer, he, he typically took it and knocked him down. Oh, yeah, he was very, very reliable, especially in those early parts of the games. I was shocked, too, because... I had, whether by reading or watching games, you know, aside from some clutch baskets he hit in the playoffs, that he was, you know, like you said, a non-shooter, so not really a threat. And, and yeah, maybe from three-point range he really wasn't, but you, the Rockets were signing off, like you said, from 20 to 15 feet, saying, okay, we'll give that to you all day. And I loved his decision-making. Um, it was a type of aggressiveness that I was shocked to see where, okay, you know, he's getting that pick and roll, he's dumping the ball to Robinson, he's getting the team their offense, but when he wasn't doing that, he had some fearless forays into the basket that were very quick. He was very confident taking some jumpers. It was, he had himself a series in this one. I, I think he was what, uh, average, average 11 points a game in the season that, in that first half of game one that we're talking about. He uh, had set at 14 already. Yep, he uh, he was he was really terrific. Uh, we'll get to um, um, his game two performance and maybe why that wasn't quite as good a little bit later. But, uh, you know, I really like this Spurs team. You know, as the more I watched them, the more I just became a huge fan. Vinny Del Negro, the other guard in the, in the backcourt for this team, you know, a, a solid three-point shooter. 
Uh, and, you know, they, they had a couple of sets in the early going to get him some open looks where he would set a back screen, a lot like what the Rockets do to free up Eric Gordon, where he'll set a back screen to a big man and then he'll get a, a down screen to come up to the three-point line at the top of the key and, and fire away. But uh, Del Negro, uh, you know, a solid player as well. And and the Spurs look like, you know, they're in, they're in decent shape at the start of this ballgame. And, and Olajuwon picks up a couple of uh, very questionable foul calls in that first quarter where, you know, David Robinson, uh, at times, you know, as much as I like David Robinson in this series, at times it seemed like he uh, didn't really know what he was doing in terms of posting up and, and just kind of jumping into the defender. But uh, in this first quarter of game one, it uh, it paid off as it got Olajuwon in foul trouble. Oh, yeah. I, was, I had that as something I looked as well. Back to the basket, I mean, Olajuwon was head and shoulders above pretty much anyone in the league, but um, it was the contrast wasn't much more glaring than it was against Robinson, where Robinson seemed much more confident being able to face up his defender, jab step, you know, either drive to the basket or go for that, you know, 15-footer. And, and with his back to the basket, it did seem like he would hold it for a minute, maybe take a power dribble or two, and then just turn full direction and drive into the defender <laughs> somewhere in the general direction of the basket and either hope for a foul, um, which was pretty much what game one was, or turn it over. Like, he didn't really seem, like you said, to have any clear direction of what he wanted to do. And that was in stark contrast to a large one, which every move, every feint, every counter was calculated. So it was interesting to see that, you know, especially in an era where the back to the basket was kind of the way it was for the top centers of the league. You know, you had Shaq's mornings, uh, Ewing's, Elijah ones that maybe it wasn't Robinson's like bread and butter. But yeah, he, for both centers, in my opinion, you know, Robinson especially was stiff. Um, they both had, what, nine travel calls between the two of them, um, with Robinson having just a little bit more. Um, you're right, on his drives, he was able to get two quick fouls on Elijah in that first quarter. But, and I don't know what you thought about this guy. I didn't think that he was able to really take advantage of Hakeem's absence once Hakeem had to go to the bench, especially when, you know, 38-year-old Charles Jones came and, and really gave some great minutes for Houston. Yeah, and Charles Jones apparently was a guy that, uh, you know, averaged like something like three points a game and, you know, just uh, real paltry-like numbers. Uh, but uh, he had a he had a, a big contribution in that game one stepping up, and, and people were talking about the fact that the, a lot of people suggested the Rockets should cut him, but uh, they kept him in part because of this matchup, knowing that they were going to have to deal with Robinson. And, uh, you know, the foul trouble was a factor throughout the series with both Olajuwon and Robinson getting into it and then the, the team's coaches having to elect to have them guard other guys. So, yeah, having a, a secondary guard, guy like Charles Jones to defend Robinson was, was valuable for Houston. Uh, another thing, you know, Olajuwon got, got into foul trouble in that first quarter, sat out the end of the period. But then to start the second, Robinson was getting his usual rest and the Rockets took advantage of that as Olajuwon was absolutely destroying Terry Cummings to uh, to start that second quarter. Oh, completely! It was not a, it was no challenge for him. I know that at least this, um, telecast I was listening to was saying that maybe um, having a player like the Charles Jones, the equivalent for the Spurs, would have been forty year old Moses Malone, who was in his final season, but he was out injured um, and wouldn't even play the whole series. But for them, no one else that they matched up with could stop him. Dennis Rodman wasn't offering resistance, and I wrote this in my notes. Terry Cummings was cooked every time he had to guard Hakeem. And Terry Cummings was no slouch. You know, he was a, a all-defensive player back in his prime in the mid-'80s, 
but at this point, I mean, he would play for several more seasons, but his better days were behind him. And as a defender, especially playing someone like Akeem Olajuwon in his prime, it, it wasn't even a challenge. Um, Akeem was getting literally whatever he wanted. And oftentimes, he made Olajuwon at least, I mean, he made um, Robinson look kind of silly at times, you know, jumping at feints and fakes. But at least Robinson's reflexes were enough to react to that as it happened. Cummings was kind of reacting to things after they were done. And you didn't, it was it was no one to stop him. You're right. Once uh, they brought Cummings in, Hakeem went on a run, and then Bob Hill had to pull Cummings real quick out and try to get smaller and maybe just concede, okay, you know, Hakeem's going to eat a little bit here. Yeah, Cummings was, was 33 at this point, as you said. You know, his prime was uh, in the 80s with the, with the Bucks, and, and even then with Milwaukee, he was more of a power forward. Uh, so, you know, playing him as a, as a backup center was, uh, you know, not the, the greatest fit for him. But, you know, another thing that, was, that seemed to be a problem for San Antonio in the early going was the, the matchup with Clyde Drexler. Now, of course, the Spurs had a really good wing player in, uh, in Sean Elliott, but uh, he didn't seem to really be that great of an option defensively against Drexler, and Clyde started game one seven for seven. Yeah, Clyde was another monster that there was uh, there was no matchup for San Antonio that would work for him. Um, smaller guards, you mentioned uh, not only just Sean Elliott, but Vinny Donegro, others you could take down, overpower them, you know, post up um, and get points there. In transition, he was a terror. He had a monster slam uh, later in this game. <laughs> just a hammer slam over Sean Elliott, just eviscerated him. It was nasty. And then, you know, as, and we'll talk about this later, as the series went along, his, his jump shot, I don't remember being his three ball, wasn't a big factor in game one, but over time, especially, you know, game two moving on, he had times where he would just face up the guy and just hit a three in his eye. It was, there was nobody to stop. Um, Drexler here, and what was hilarious to me is that it was brought up a lot that, you know, Drexler just wants this ring so bad. You know, the storyline of it, the passion of him really trying to get through the hump. But either way, you could tell by the way he's playing, it was a man on a mission, and yeah, just like they had no one to really stick Makeem Olajuwon, the Spurs didn't really have anyone in their personnel who could reliably stay in front of Clyde Drexler um, in any of the three levels as far as scoring. Now, I do actually think they did have somebody, and we'll, we'll talk about him a little bit later on. Okay. But uh, they didn't use him very often on him. But, uh, yeah, the, uh, the, uh, the, the Spurs, you know, with a, you know, a pretty veteran-laden bench, you know, we already, we already mentioned uh, Terry Cummings. They had Doc Rivers, who, uh, you know, was, was also an older player. You know, his, his prime was in his days with Atlanta, but uh, apparently he, you know, he had dealt with a lot of injuries throughout the early 90s and was feeling, you know, the best he had felt in five years. That was a quote he had uh, during this series. And so Rivers was kind of the backup point guard. And then uh, they also had Chuck Person, a guy who was a deadly shooter for a good portion of his career. So they had some, you know, some notable names off that San Antonio bench. Uh, but uh, yeah, what did you feel about the the two teams' bench and and, and that in that battle? It was interesting. Uh, the, uh, the Spurs definitely leaned older with their bench. I loved the way Doc Rivers played the series, and in general, um, it probably is some recency bias because I was watching uh, last week um, the eighties. Atlanta Hawks with Doc Rivers at the helm. So to see him a little older, but definitely picking his spots a lot more um, was cool <laughs> to kind of watch that aging and development there. Um, the Rockets, for sure, had this kind of platoon at point guard with um, uh, Kenny Smith, Sam Cassell coming in at spots and, you know, having a young Sam Cassell, seeing a young um, Robert Ory was kind of coming off the bench um, as they started uh, Pete Chilcutt, uh at power forward was interesting. And you could 
tell that the Rockets were definitely still um, kind of figuring out, especially with the young players who were more prominent parts, that were Cassell and Ori at least, um, later on, because they did kind of skew more veteran at times. You did have a Chucky Brown come in for big minutes, um, well, not big minutes, but playing, you know, a uh, power forward defender at times. Um, Mario Ellie had a great playoff uh, round in general, just playoff year in 95, and he was big in this series. Um, I enjoyed the way the Rockets kind of brought their guys out, and you could see the injection of energy of Sam Grissel and him not being able to understand, you know, defensive violations and what a clear double team is. Um, Robert Ory <laughs> having, you know, games that skewed from hot, cold, and sometimes within the same span of a game. Charles Jones with his great minutes. Um, Chucky Brown just being another body to be able to throw at people. You know, I, I enjoyed it. Mario Ellie, uh, he was the impact guy for me. If I had to pick one guy from each bench that I enjoyed, it would be um, Ellie for the Rockets and Doc Rivers for the Spurs. But uh, going into the Spurs even more, um, Chuck Person, I mean, you know, the Rifleman, he didn't have, at least from what I remember, a great shooting series. Um, but the reputation was there. He knocked down some good shots. Willie Anderson, who I actually remember being an early draft pick for the Spurs right around the time they got David Robinson, um, definitely had some minutes where he was effective. Um, I don't remember him playing in game one, but afterwards he was a guy who knocked down several key jump shots, and he was huge. J.R. Reed was solid. Yes. I, and at times, yeah, I'm going to let you definitely. He, he seemed almost a better fit at times than Rodman um, for what the Spurs are trying to do offensively and defensively. So I enjoyed both. Yeah, so I, I got to correct you, though. Robert Ory started every game in the series, but uh, there the the... The, the Rockets did mix up the, the starting lineup on three different occasions. You, you mentioned Pete Chilcutt started, I believe, the first couple of games. Then they yeah. started Chucky Brown uh, in, in Game 3, and then they made adjustments later to, to start Mario Ellie. So Ori did, uh, did start, but he switched between playing the 3 and the 4 at various times in the series. But yeah, Ori, oh, we'll, 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 get to, we'll get to him as uh, he played a, a major role throughout the, the uh, entire six-game playoff run. But uh, yeah, the, the, another big thing, speaking of the first half of this game, Robinson picks up his third foul with about four minutes left in the first half. Uh, but uh, the Rockets not able to fully take advantage because Rudy Tomjanovich, the head coach for, for Houston, took Olajuwon out with a minute left in the half, and, and he only had two fouls. Yeah, it was a weird matchup. Um, fiasco, or what, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm not going to say it. But basically, just kind of a surprising and questionable coaching job where you had the advantage, especially at the one position that the Spurs were weakest at, and he didn't press that. Right, and you, you, yeah, you see, you know, a lot of coaches uh, overreact to, to foul trouble, and it's it's uh, it's one thing to react when a guy gets his third foul in the first half; it's another to react when he has two. Uh, but uh, yeah, that uh, that will always annoy me to the end of time. The coaches' uh, decisions with that sort of stuff. But um, yeah, the the Houston Rockets had a had a pretty decent lead heading into uh, you know the closing moments of that first half but then the Spurs go on a 10-1 run capped off by a Sean Elliott four-point play with less than 10 seconds to go and actually put the Spurs up one at halftime but Elliott a player that you know maybe a little bit ahead of his time because on numerous occasions including the 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 four-point play I just mentioned he had the ability to to hit up hit those pull-up threes from from pretty deep yeah and off the dribble too was he had his 
skill set was so intriguing, and I know they talked about the storyline. It was kind of um, interesting how the Spurs had traded him basically for um, Dennis Rodman. He went to the Pistons for Dennis Rodman. Um, I think it was another player thrown in as well, and then got traded back in a horrible year in Detroit. Was traded back to San Antonio for Bill Curley. And so, you know, he was right back to being, you know, second leading scorer next to Robinson. A lot more assertive. But that assertiveness, to me at least, seemed to come and go because his skill set, man, he could have poured it on. I mean, you're referencing this 10 0 run they went on. You know, a half, he had 15 points and 5 of 10 shooting. And that four point play was great because not only was it a sense of timing, but as he was driving, he just, like you said, pulled up on a dime. And I guess, you know, the defender didn't realize he was going to. Just pull up for that kind of shot. And he did that a couple times where he was able to take the ball and drive straight to the basket. A lot of those highlight kind of plays um, from that wing position were from Elliott. And let me, I don't know if it was just the Spurs system, which is hilarious to say when, you know, it was kind of before it really um, got his notoriety with uh, popping the helmets and ducking everything. But Sean Elliott looked so much more comfortable in San Antonio in this playoff series that he had. While I feel he definitely could have been more served at times, he really made this engine go. And for that first half in particular, that 10-0 run was really keyed by plays by Sean Elliott and Avery Johnson to really take over the Spurs offense with the Robinson's absence. Yeah, Elliott, uh, as you mentioned, a, a really talented player. He's got good size, good athleticism, can score in all three areas. You know, he seemed comfortable pulling up from 15, 18, or even, as, as we mentioned, from beyond the three-point line. Um, and and yeah, so so moving on to the second half, my first thing on my notes is the is the uh, the dunk by Clyde that you already mentioned over Sean Elliott. Yeah, a, uh, he got a uh, transition opportunity, and Elliott tried to draw the charge, but he was basically standing under the basket. And uh, and Drexler showed that even at his advanced age, he still has some hops. Oh yeah, that I lost my mind on that one, Garrett. I'm like, oh my goodness, because he went up and then. feel bad for for the player in the in the uh, position of Elliot there because yeah it's it's good that he's actually attempting to play defense you know plenty of guys just say oh I don't want to get dunked on and move out of the way uh, and uh, but uh, yeah it uh, it is it is a bit embarrassing when that happens to you uh, and uh, I don't know about you but I got dunked on once or twice in my playing career uh, yeah I, I know a notable one in high school that um, basically I did my best uh, Jason Terry versus Miami Heat <laughs> it, it, was, it was pretty tragic it was pretty tragic <laughs> I remember like it was yesterday lost the ball, bring it up court on full court pressure, turned around, turned around bam um, yeah, yeah, I was, me and my friends scored 10 points each, that was our team's total we lost 20 to 74 and that dunk made our uh, local newspaper so uh, <laughs> that was not great <laughs> yeah, the, the, the main one I remember from, from my uh from my high school days, I was playing a defense on a two-on-one situation, and I was defending the the uh, the ball handler, and he kind of just like pitched it back to a guy trailing, 
and I decided to to come towards him to try to stop him, and it was it was already too late to say the least. Oh man! I, as soon as you said the trailer, I was like, oh no, because they already ready cocked back. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's our horror stories right there. Yeah, uh, but uh, yeah, moving on to kind of the latter stages of the third quarter of this game one, uh, David Robinson, you know, his struggles offensively continued in this game, you know, turning the basketball over. You mentioned both him and Akeem were, were tra- called for traveling a bunch. Some of them were good calls. A couple of them I thought were questionable. Uh, but uh, yeah, Robinson not making that mid-range face-up jumper, missing some free throws. Uh, he was just one of 11 from the field through three quarters. And uh, despite that, though, the Spurs were still in the game, down just six. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, other like you said, we already mentioned Elliott stepping up. Avery Johnson had himself a great game. And Doc Rivers, pace coming off the bench uh, as well with a solid eight points. You know, he had a couple fouls, and he wasn't knocking down the three ball. But he was another guy who, you know, the few minutes that Avery did get rest, and oftentimes, you know, um, aside him in place of Del Negro, he played well. It was kind of um, the Spurs supporting cast really coming together to keep the Spurs in it because Robinson, yes, was a complete non-factor, but um, other guys especially stepped up and, you know, they, they, they did what they could. And it was impressive to kind of see that, especially when you look back in the midst of the game watching and you look back and it's like, oh, wow, well, you know, it was a relatively low-scoring game for, you know, speaking for 2020, but seeing only two guys scoring more than 20 points a game, being within it like that. But it was timely shots by other guys um, in key moments. Even Vinny Del Negro, who I didn't think had the best of series, like just in general, had his threes that he did knock down or his one or two key jump shots all came like to answer a shot or, or to kind of get a, a point after a, a run that I thought was really good. Yeah, uh, the, um, the interesting thing for me, you know, when you talk about the fact that this series was 25 years ago, it's crazy to think about that, but, uh, you know, the, the two teams played a pretty modern style in terms of both teams, especially the Spurs like to play at a fast pace, the Rockets oftentimes like to play with three or even four guys that could knock down three-point shots. The, the big thing that I noticed, especially in this game one, though, is just that Houston is doing a little bit better job in terms of spacing the floor around their star center than the Spurs. And, and part of that is due to Mario Eli, who, coming off the bench, knocked down four threes in this ballgame. Oh, yeah. Eli was a monster, and you're right. Each time that he got those threes, and I think the announcer even said it, you know, it's time, he had time to get his feet set, let that shot go up. And he was a monster out there. He even did the kiss of death at one of his uh, final dagger threes that I think he was trying to make a thing. But, um, yeah, the spacing was night and day difference, and you're right. It, to me, it was not only the fact that Mario Elliott was just, what, he went four for five from three in that first game, but the point guard, Sam Cassell, and, uh, and um, Kenny Smith could both shoot from deep. And the threat of that, you know, even though they didn't make one that first one, was still enough to keep the floor so spread. Whereas, you know, compare that to the Spurs on um, backcourt where Avery Johnson was definitely limited within, you know, uh, the arc as far as the shooting range. And Doc Rivers coming off the bench would take a couple, but wasn't really knocking them down anywhere with the consistency needed to kind of respect it, at least in my opinion. He um, he knocked down some later the season went on. I think he led the Spurs for the series and three-pointers made, which is uh, kind of also an indictment on the way they shot. But anyway, um, it, was, it was different watching, like you said, when you dump the balls to the bigs, um, you know, in the half-court game, which the Spurs obviously wanted to try to score in transition, but both teams went to it. You can see the ball go to Keem and the floor spaced out, you know, to the corner, to the wing, what have you. And for the, 
Spurs, you know, stretch out to the foul line, stretch out, you know, aside from Vinito Negro, as you're like one guy who is definitely going to shoot the three, it was a little more cramped. And when you have a player like Rodman or Reed, who are definitely getting their dunking shots and kind of playing more of that old school ball in terms of having the power forward, um, who's, you know, just in and around the glass, it did make things harder, especially for someone like Robinson, who we already mentioned, you know, his uh, skills with the back to the basket weren't as uh, nuanced as Elijah ones. Yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, as far as just positions one through three, you know, we, we mentioned Avery Johnson. He didn't, he didn't spot up to the three-point line, but he consistently knocked down those 15 to 18-footers. So, you know, he yeah, he wasn't, it, he didn't provide optimal spacing, but he did a reasonable job for 1995 in terms of spacing as a point guard. And then, you know, Vin, uh, Vinny Del Negro and Elliott, I think, were both solid guys in terms of spacing. The big differential for me is that four spot. You know, you talk about with the Spurs, they are... Are prioritizing the rebounding and the defense at that four position with with Rodman and Reed, whereas the Rockets, you know, they, they did start Pete Chilcutt and, and Chucky Brown games one through three, but those guys more got like kind of the Keith Bogans, the the six minutes in and, and out for the rest of the half, um, and, and then you know for the, for the rest of the for for the majority of the game, you know, you're playing Robert Ory at the four, who is who is uh, you know again again that's the Rockets prioritizing the spacing at the expense of some of those other things. No, I see what you mean. That's true. Like giving, okay, we're going to concede this to you in exchange for this. But I have a question for you, Garrett. So in, in this in this situation here, let's say that we're, we're, uh, <laughs> we're on Bob Hill here for the Spurs. What would you use to, um, well, let's say, kind of counteract that? Let's say to get more spacing on the floor. Because I agree with you there. Are you sliding Elliott up a position maybe? Are you, you know, going a little smaller and trying to match up with that and having Robinson as your one big? Because for me, I get what you mean, but it's almost like they were kind of wet to that side. Like, I don't think that they had a lot of positional versatility to match up in the way that the Rockets did um, in terms of, you know, going, um, stretching the floor more with Warrior, like you said, being kind of a difference maker at that four spot. Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me that I think Bob Hill failed to, to do enough of was utilize Rodman's defensive versatility. You know, I might as well just say it now. The one guy on the Spurs that I thought did a reasonable job on Drexler was Rodman. Uh, and, w- you know, when he was on there, I thought he did a, a very good job. I mean, Rodman, obviously a great athlete, can move his feet well. I mean, he, he was basically, to me, a, a Draymond Green-esque type of switch defender. Um, and, and, you know, with, with David Robinson off the floor, given how poorly I thought Cummings played for the most part, I would have yeah, I, I would have maybe considered some lineups with Rodman at the five and Elliott at the four. Oh, wow. Yeah, that, I, I, that would have been a good little matchup. Great front coach, right? Versatility, speed. Um, you have some shooting. Rodman, like you said, not only was he an athlete at that point, but he was 33. Talk about just conditioning and advanced age basketball-wise playing that type of style. Yeah. I mean, I, he's one of the best athletes, I think, to ever play the game of basketball. I would have to agree. Because yeah, he was just the speed, the strength. That's, that actually would have been a good counter. Because you're right, Cummings just did not have it. I mean, I think he shot, what, sub 35% from the field for that playoff series. Look at my numbers now. I mean, he just offensively wasn't bringing too much defensively. Nothing was going on there, at least defending, you know, the ones that Robinson mainly, he was kind of put on to defend. I guess that would make a lot of sense. <laughs> if uh, Robinson could have made any of those threes, he ended up shooting questionably down the series. Maybe would have had yourself a stretch four. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll get into that when we get to that game, but uh, <laughs> um, 
there's there's plenty of uh, of talking points regarding Dennis Rodman with this series. Oh, I can't uh, wait. Yeah, let's, you're right. You're right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so. The um, you know going into the fourth quarter of this uh, of this game one, you know I mentioned Mario Eli knocking down big shots to try to extend that Houston lead. Sean Elliott kind of with with Robinson struggling for most of the game uh, was was kind of the the go to guy for the Spurs down the stretch, and it was kind of a back and forth ball game down the end. And Rodman had a couple of huge offensive rebounds with about a couple minutes left. He also missed a, a point-blank layup after the first rebound. Um, but, uh, you know, he was able to finally uh, convert on a couple of free throws to tie the tie up the game. But, but yeah, one of the things when you talk about Dennis Rodman, you got to talk about his rebounding prowess. And one of the notes I had here was just his ability to, as soon as that shot goes up, he gets really low, and he's able to push his man under the basket without, you know, doing that obvious forearm shove. Uh, that a lot of guys get called for. So he's able to just kind of get his shoulder into the guy, get him under the rim, and then his anticipation to know where the ball is going to bounce is just unprecedented. Oh, yeah, you definitely couldn't teach that. You're right. Getting low, using that center of gravity in a subtle way so as not to get the the fly because you've been pushed with a strong form, you know, foul call. Yeah, it was really underrated. I have, I know, too, we talked about missing that layup. I had that. It made me laugh. And then... Um, I had the same one where he had grabbed two key rebounds, kind of got the ball back out to Avery Johnson. It just felt like it really kind of low for a hot second. You know, the Spurs kind of got on their offense, and Rodman was kind of just standing there, kind of meandered to the foul line. And then all of a sudden, like that, he was in pick-and-roll action with Johnson, got the pass, made a layup. He's run down the court, pumping his fist and playing some random member of the crowd. And I was like, dude, I love Rodman. Like, yeah. <laughs> it was, the, the Rodman experience was amazing. But to go back to that rebounding, just it was almost easy to – not even watch the ball, not even watch any action, just watch what Rodman did on the court, why he was such a magnet to the ball, how his effort and his uncanny second jump kept him in place for several different rebounds that most guys, you know, would have tried and missed or wouldn't have got at all. And it was it was a marvel to watch. It really, really was for the Spurs team especially. So after San Antonio ties it, Houston has possession with, with under a minute to go and they throw the ball into Hakeem and Doc Rivers with a, a veteran play, sneaking up from behind and stealing it, and then he just pokes the ball to Sean Elliott in transition, and he actually gets fouled. And and this is also where I've got to, to mention that despite San Antonio being up one with 30 seconds left, Elliott missing a couple of free throws and David Robinson missing one uh, were, were pretty crucial when we uh, when we get down to what happens in the closing moments. Oh, yeah. When he missed that first shoot, I was like, ah, come on. Like, you're right. Just down the stretch, having Elliott definitely stepped up in Robinson's absence, at least um, efficiency-wise. But missing those free throws in that clutch situation, that could have put a cushion, um, especially then with the dangerous three-point shooting team as the Rockets were in general, was was, was crucial and devastating for them. And to, to really have kind of stayed in that game without, you know, your best player, you know, really setting the tone and being in this against an inspired team with the Rockets that were just coming into their own and kind of coming up short, at least, you know, with the missed free throw and stuff going up. That was, to me, I thought that was a killer. Like, the announcing team was definitely focusing more on the Rodman situation, but I was like, okay, at the time, it's executing on the stretch. Doc Rivers had made a great play to even get the Spurs in position there, made all the right moves he could do, and at that point, you know, it just comes down to closing it out, and, and that right there was... It set the table for exactly what happened next for the Rockets. 
Yeah, so again, Spurs up one despite those three missed free throws in the final minute. Houston calls timeout, and then uh, in the, the huddle, this begins the drama with Dennis Rodman. Uh, the the off-the-court drama, I suppose. And uh, Dennis Rodman not participating in the huddle during the timeout, just not paying any attention, um, you know, just completely out of it. And, you know, obviously Bob Hill trying to draw up his defensive strategy for this uh, crucial possession with the game on the line. And uh, Rodman just, uh, you know, wants nothing to do with it. So he still goes out there and... Uh, the, the Rockets end up running a play, and it ends up being Rodman's man, Robert Ory, that gets a pass at uh, the three-point line on the left wing. He fakes a pass, takes a dribble in, and knocks down the shot, about an 18-footer, to put the Rockets up one with under 10 seconds to go. And I don't know about you, but uh, despite all of the... Uh, all of the shots that I have seen throughout, you know, with those big shot Bob highlight reels, this was actually a shot I was unaware of. Yeah, me neither. I mean, it, it was one that definitely took me by surprise because I think, same thing, big shot Bob and always for three. So I'm like, okay, he's going to take a sidestep or whatever. My 2020 um, NBA eyes were definitely seeing something different with that, especially, you know, stealing a big game against the number one seed at home in a very clutch situation where you're right, you know, you fake the pass took the step in in rhythm after having kind of an up-and-down game, um, at least in my recollection, recollection, that was huge. And you're right, it wasn't something that, that popped up. I mean, he went one for five from the field in general, and that one shot, you know, that, that was the shot. Right, yeah, up-and-down game, meaning, yeah, he only showed up when it mattered most. <laughs> 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 so that was crazy, and you're right, having that Rodman influence there, um, it, it, was, it was, I guess, unnerving because... You could instantly see the Spurs team. I, I was looking, and I thought about this when Rodman's brought I'm like, don't they have any veteran leaders who can kind of say, hey, listen, and not a Rodman whisperer, but someone to say, hey, this is how we play, whatever the case may be, yada, yada, like, you know, let's let's set the tone. And they really didn't have one. I mean, I, I don't know enough about Terry Cummings' influence um, in the locker room as, like, an old vet or anything to say or do anything, but from all that I've read or seen, you know, he's kind of a quiet person who kind of, you know, led by example at least, but when you're someone like Robin who, Leads by his own example with the beat to his own drum. Really doesn't do a whole lot for you. Um, and then looking out, you know, Robinson was a quiet kind of silent type. Definitely straight the character, but just on his own. Um, these other guys didn't seem like there was anyone there who could say, hey, listen, I guess maybe one I could think of was Doc Rivers. Like, Robin, this is what we're going to do. I mean, you did have, um, I guess, uh, Jack Haley, the, the Robin whisperer. But I don't know if he's the guy who's going to get him to come into the huddle and, and kind of pay attention there. And when he was taking off his shoes and just kind of out of it, at moments, um, and that came later, it was just, it was like innerly, like, wow, at a time when you need the team to come together the most, and Rodman having, you know, the most championship experience on this roster, at least of anyone playing, that, you know, those habits would come through, and I think at this point, he was kind of checked out a little bit, um, for reasons that I honestly couldn't even tell you. Yeah, I mean, the, the him taking the shoes off that you just referenced, you know, that, that happens... You know, after the, the Robert Ory shot that puts the Rockets up one with 6.5 seconds left, San Antonio takes a timeout to, to draw up a final play for the final possession. And yeah, Rodman's just on the bench taking his shoes off. I guess he's choosing himself uh, to, to either uh, to, to come out of the game where Bob Hill had just had enough at that point and had decided that he wasn't going to be out there. But again, down one, 
uh, having one of the best offensive rebounders in the history of the game to to tap the ball in or do something, you know, would be pretty valuable. But uh, he was not out there on the final possession. And uh, as I mentioned, the the Spurs going more to Sean Elliott in the closing stages with Robinson struggling offensively. Elliott gets the ball on the left wing. He drives right, going to the hoop, and Clyde Drexler makes the defensive play of the game. He leaves Vinny Del Negro in the strong side corner and takes the hit. The, the, the referees didn't blow the whistle for a charge, but it was clearly a charge in my mind. Uh, but it, uh, it, it, it threw off Elliott. He couldn't make the shot. Ball game. Rockets steal one on the road. Yeah. Uh, wow, when you broke that down, the excitement of it was just there all over again, Garrett. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. It was solid. I mean, and that was another thing. I think they brought in, correct me if I'm wrong, I think they brought in Reed for um, Rodman back then. Yes. Um, for that final possession. But in my mind, you know, you bring in, you know, like bring all of your shooters on the floor with the exception of Robinson and then either play through Elliott or dump it into Robinson to get that final possession, but at least you have some semblance of floor spacing because if you're not going to go on the tip in the basketball, then why would you bring in a, a, an inferior rebounder and Reed to do the same job, you know? At least in my... In my logic, they're thinking basketball. I was like, I understand why they went to Elliott. It made perfect sense to me with Robinson having, you know, arguably, I guess, his worst playoff game of his career at that point, considering the stage and everything. But I just didn't think that Hill made the most of his personnel in that instance. Uh, maybe I'm thinking too forward, thinking for 95 back then, but that was my thought. No, I, I completely agree. But, you know, you, you also talk about even with the limited spacing that they had, if Elliott just makes the pass to Del Negro, he's got an open shot to win the ball game, and he's a solid shooter. Uh, but, uh, you know, Clyde Drexler, I think, you know, that's just one of those plays where basketball IQ comes in and realizes Elliott is, is going to take this shot. He's got, you know, a narrow-minded focus here, so I can leave even a good shooter to, to stop him. So, Brilliant play from Drexler. He finished the game with 25 points, 12 rebounds, 10 of 21 from the field. And, you know, despite the fact that Hakeem, we'll, we'll get into throughout this series how brilliant Hakeem is, I really felt like Clyde Drexler was the MVP of this one for Houston. Oh, yes, for sure. He was the guy who kept the offense humming along, you know, throughout Hakeem's foul trouble and whatnot. The guy who played down the stretch, monster game in this game one here, uh, 25 points, 12 boards, 3 assists, and was just mo- monstrous. I mean, and you're right, plays like that that demonstrate the IQ stepping up to the challenge and, and really, you know, snuffing out an offensive possession, a key final one in his tracks, you know, kind of stuff that sneaks behind the scenes outside the stats, and monster game, MVP definitely. And did you happen to catch... Um, I don't know what broadcast or um, catching of game one. Did you hear? And I love this touch where the I think it was the TNT crew. They interviewed the member of the losing team for that first game, and the guy they chose was Dennis Rodman. Did you hear that? I did, and uh, yeah, I mean, obviously <laughs> the the drama down the stretch with everything going on. Yeah, it was. Uh, I think it was a good call to kind of get his uh, his stance on things. I wish the reporter was. Uh, you know, a, a little bit harsher in terms of just getting at what the heck happened, but uh, but yeah, it, it is uh, it is interesting to hear, uh, you know, the the guy that might be a little bit disappointed in his immediate thoughts following a, a, a brutal loss. Oh yeah, I expected Robin to go full Demarcus Cousins. This is ridiculous, you know, that, <laughs> that old school interview. But he was. I mean, it was interesting to hear his take because he was apparently to him he was doing no, no big deal, you know. I'm like this all the time, this and that. But his comments about nobody playing with any sort of intensity or whatever really had me. 
was like, wow, Rodman, okay. This is a guy taking off his shoes in the midst of the game. Yeah, and one of his, I think he had a he had a comment too saying essentially that the reason he wasn't paying attention in the huddle was because he's tired. It's like, well, everybody's tired at this point. Exactly. It was just, it was funny to hear from him, like you said, the immediate interaction and what he thought was a factor, wasn't a factor to this team and how, you know, we have guys here who need to want it. And I was like, okay, Rodman, like, you know, you're obviously in your own universe, but this is where you put all the little championship rings that I guess you were part of and say whatever you want to say while doing whatever the heck it is you want to do, you know? Yeah, so uh, let's let's move on to Game 2. Of course, San Antonio, after losing Game 1 at home, uh, feeling like Game 2 is a must-win. One of the notes I had uh, was that uh, Joey Crawford, a guy that refereed for a long time, was one of the, the officials for this ball game. And then also David Robinson was given the MVP award before the game, and and you mentioned at the outset of this podcast that Hakeem maybe took offense to the fact that uh, Robinson got the MVP award. It maybe uh, heightened that uh, intensity up to ten, given that uh, he saw him accept the the trophy before the ball game. The funny thing about that was, yeah, I agree. It was like he saw it. I know at the beginning, I, I kind of noted that you know he gave he embraced Robinson a little bit, kind of showed him some love, and then just seemed to set to work to show why that shouldn't happen. Like, <laughs> almost from the onset that, you know, I, and I thought, okay, this is the actual, like, signature game here. You're in front of your home crowd. You're in that acknowledgement. You're playing a team that just uh, kind of upsets you, depending on how you look at it. Um, you had the worst game that you had in recent memory. How do you respond? And, you know, depending on where you want to go with this, I, I actually think Robinson played quite well. Um, I mean, the numbers say that he did, but also just in general being more sort of um, jump was falling a little bit more, um, the jumper falling period after game one being the key factor. But um, in general, I thought he responded well. It was just that Keen was just on a whole different level on it. I would say that that's how I felt about the entire series. And that David Robinson, it wasn't as if he choked or played really bad. Uh, you know, he played pretty close to his typical level, but Hakeem just took it up, uh, you know, to a to superhuman proportions and uh, playing at like a top five all-time level in this series. Uh, but a couple of things that, that went wrong pretty early on in this game, too, for San Antonio. For one, uh, Avery Johnson sprained his ankle early in that first quarter, and he basically was a, was a non-factor throughout game two. That was a big loss for San Antonio. Of course, Johnson, one of their top three or four players on the team. And then... Rodman, again, the head case stuff continuing, attempting three threes in the opening quarter of Game 2. Yeah, and only one of them would I excuse as, like, the shot clock going down. I think he caught a rebound in the far um, left corner and just let one fly. But the other ones made absolutely zero sense to me. And I think it was hilarious kind of seeing the announcers kind of report the shot with, like, a mix of, like, wonder and horror at, like, why... (laughs) he would take one. It was to the point that it made like a subplot midway through the first quarter something where a graphic popped up saying that Rodman was over 2 that season from 3 and was over 3 in the first half or first quarter from 3. And yeah. you're right, it was just it was just like Rodman was going, I, I don't know what the thought process was there, but it, it didn't make any sense to just take those shots with no rhythm. Now, what's funny is like one of them actually came kind of close to going in, I think, but like just in general, that was outstanding. He was calling an audible. That's what it felt like. Like, um, you, okay, this may be like this random arcane kind of thought, but do you remember the video game of Leroy Jenkins? 
Yes. Have you heard that? Yeah. That is what I felt that Rodman was doing. <laughs> and every time you shot the three, like, you have the team game plan, everything, and Rodman's like, forget this, I'm going in. And just, like, randomly, it, 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 I, it, it would be one thing to, like, see a documentary or something or whatever on his thought process taking those shots. But honestly, all I can think of is that it was Rodman being Rodman. It didn't help that you mentioned the real factor of that first half was Avery Johnson kind of coming up a little gimpy there and having that engine for the Spurs team hobble, you know, at least through that game. Yeah, I think it's about time we we really start talking up Hakeem here because this game, too, was really where he started to, to show out. And, you know, the... The, the, when he started scoring one-on-one, the Spurs started throwing double teams at him, and Hakeem in that second quarter of this game, just picking them apart. He found Robert Ory for a couple of threes. He found Chucky Brown for a dunk. Uh, and, you know, they they also had uh, Rudy Tomjanovich, the coach of the Rockets, had an ATO where they had the ball on the left wing with, with Hakeem posting up. They throw the ball up top, and then they just throw the lob to Hakeem you know, with the with his defender kind of uh, three-quartering that, that pass to try to deny uh, to get him an easy bucket. And and then, you know, after he was picking him apart with the passing, you know, he got back to, to scoring one-on-one. And, and his toolbox on the block is just, you know, there, there's zero flaws. There's zero weaknesses in his post game. He has a right-handed jump hook, which he can hit to about 13 feet. He's got a turnaround over either shoulder. Uh, you've mentioned uh, the the footwork where he's and the pump fakes where he's getting David Robinson off balance. He's got up and unders. He's got spin moves each direction, step throughs, and he can even face up and cross over and pull up from anywhere to twenty feet. I mean, the guy just his offensive package is just it's it's just insane. It's yeah, I literally the one where I kept thinking was exquisite. Like there was you said it, no flaws. I mean, his standstill jumper was great. Passing, a sense of when the double team was coming, that footwork just being phenomenal. I mean, we could probably spend your right gushing just so much on it, but especially when every shot was on, you know, he had the banker, he had the straightaway. I mean, when every shot was going in, you know, and his whole entire repertoire was just unleashed, man, there was nothing you could do, especially and it, it was more jarring seeing just this chiseled, great defender in Robinson who, you know, had chased down blocks in game one, was all over the place, just so completely outmatched, at least on the defensive end, against um, Hakeem. And, and for the Spurs, well, that's your best defender. I mean, you know that everyone else you're trotting out will arguably best defender. Let's not overlook Rodman. But it didn't really matter because Hakeem was getting his. I thought on Rodman, too, was wasn't really anyone there who was really limiting him. And, yeah, it was devastating to see down the stretch. Leaners, fadeaways. Bang shots to the corner from the top. It was, it was, it was a stretch, man. It was a stretch. I mean, the whole game was his stretch. <laughs> yeah, this this game in particular. I'm sure if any of you have watched the highlights of this series, without going into the detail of of actually watching the full game, one of the 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 famous clips is uh, that double pump fake move that Hakeem put on David Robinson where he started with the ball on the left, he faces up, he puts a nice crossover on him towards the baseline, then fakes a shot with the right hand towards the hoop, Robinson falls for that, then he comes back with what looks like it's going to be a jump hook with the right hand, Robinson falls for that fake, and then finally puts puts it up and in. But uh, that move kind of encapsulated what he was doing in this game against Robinson and the entire Spurs team. It was just filthy. Yeah, 
it was it was just disgusting. Even in real time watching that, I was like, oh, jump. Oh, and looking at him, like, the way that he sold the move going both ways, I don't know what you would have done differently. You know what I mean? Had the fake where he would fake to go back that way. I mean, aside from maybe Kevin McHale, I don't know anyone who had, like, a deeper toolbox in the low post, aside from Akeem Olajuwon. Right. It was uh, it was incredibly impressive, and he was a, a big reason why Houston was uh, you know getting off to a lead here. Another another note I had about this game too was that Clyde Drexler, after an amazing game one performance, he's taking the challenge on the defensive end of slowing down Sean Elliott and doing a pretty good job. And just that you know you you talk about I think what was fun about this series is both teams' top two players. You could argue uh, for the Spurs is Robinson and Elliott at the center and small forward position, and for the Rockets it's Hakeem and Drexler. So you have the the stars battling in that one-on-one matchup, and in this game too, Houston, you know, their stars had the advantage. Yeah, they definitely did. They set the tone. Drexler completely right took Elliott out, twelve points on twelve shots, not great. In fact, aside from um, Robinson, I think the only guy who really stepped up. For the Spurs, I enjoyed, again, can't say enough, Doc Rivers. I loved him offensively again for this team setting the tone. But um, to go back to what you were saying with the Stars, yeah, um, it, it really said everything there that Robinson played well, but Keem was on a whole other level. And this time it was more like Drexler starting in with that complimentary role and just having the steady four games throughout. You know, the 23 points, five rebounds, and six assists show like setting this across rebounding and distributing the ball and everything, but nothing about the defensive impact getting his hands in there for two steals, getting two blocks, and just being a menace to completely take out um, this first second banana. Yeah, and you mentioned Doc playing and, and playing pretty well in this game, and he had to play extended minutes given that I mentioned, you know, Avery Johnson with that sprained ankle didn't play too much. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was fascinating. Another, another little thing, a little set that the Rockets started running was the Drexler-Hakeem pick and roll on the left-hand side. That was causing San Antonio problems, and and partially because, again, Hakeem's versatility offensively uh, makes that action so difficult to guard because Hakeem can roll to the rim and dunk, he can pop out to 15 to 18 feet, or he can slip to the rim. And Drexler, you know, the, again, that basketball IQ coming into play, whatever the Spurs defense was doing against that action, he was just countering. Yeah, I mean, there was, and when you have, like you said, people, players as versatile, as Drexler and Elijah one, there's really nothing you can do to stop that because you already mentioned all of that, but he was also had that Robinson ability to face up and take you, you know, off the dribble. You know, he wasn't as it wasn't his go to move anywhere near the stretch that it was for Robinson. Um, but it was a lot more successful in my opinion and another uh, clever nuance that you could play out of that out of that um, action that was hard to stop, especially when the personnel for the Spurs was mismatched, depending on which play you had on and foul trouble and everything. That they could have went to that again and again and again. And, you know, oftentimes they were able to kind of make that, like you said, more of a pet action. Now, the the guy that, uh, you know, that sealed the game one win, Robert Ori, uh, you know, didn't play well in that first game other than hitting that clutch shot. But in this game, too, uh, you know, he started to show what he was capable of and, and for the people that are familiar with Robert Ory in his Lakers days, and of course even later with the Spurs, might not realize that this guy was a heck of an athlete. At this time in Houston, this guy was was a really good leaper, was really fast, and uh, I noticed he had a, a terrific chase down block on Willie Anderson in the third quarter when the Spurs kind of had a decent run going. Uh, that was a, a big time play and, and showed some great athleticism from Ory. Oh, yeah. No, that was a 
monster player, and you said it. For those who watched Robert Roy back then, I mean, for one thing, not only great athlete, but I think his body was even remade at the time, where he remade it later. You know, as he kind of started more to a big role um, to kind of play just power forwards exclusively later on um, with the Lakers, and then all you know, ultimately just kind of getting just older in general and bigger um, with the Spurs. But back with the Rockets, when he's really swinging that three-four position, long, lean athlete, going up and down, arms for days. Um, be able to stretch the floor. Uh, I had a couple, I think it was later in the series, just great alley-oops, defensive terror. Like, yeah, the guy was, Robert Roy was something else. And, you know, people who watch highlights or whatever kind of probably remember him for, you know, standstill threes off the kickouts from Shaq or Duncan or whatever, um, or, or, or Elijah one, really. But he was also able to make some plays for himself. Um, you know, even though that wasn't his bread and butter. But in this game especially, you're right, he knocked down five big threes. And, you know, that signature shot, that hitch, that it was, it was, you knew it was going in. It kind of had that game where it felt like, okay, it was going down. And the offense only seemed to fuel his aggressiveness all over in other aspects of the game. Um, defensively, you said that one chase down block. He had another good block. He's won that one. And he was just a monster, especially playing 38 huge minutes. I mean, I give the playoffs and everything, but that effectiveness hanging out throughout that and not being, you know, uh, a Clyde Drexel or a Keen, but might as well being one of, as important as uh, they were in the end of game two for the Houston Rockets. Yeah, uh, you you mentioned Doc Rivers and his play in uh, in this ball game in the third quarter. Rivers with with ten points, really keeping the Spurs in this one. Uh, the Spurs just like uh, in in game one, down six at the end of three quarters. And uh, Sean Elliott, again, after struggling for a lot of this game, he started to get hot early in the fourth quarter and, uh, you know, brought the Spurs within one with nine minutes to go. So despite what Hakeem is doing, despite what Clyde is doing, uh, what Ori is doing, the Spurs just keep coming at the Rockets. And that's one thing I enjoyed, their fight. I mean, if you look at, if you look at, um, like, Future recollections of the series, you know, the Rockets first put up some resistance somewhere, but the Rockets were just a, a man on the mission, heart of a champion, whatever the case may be. But for especially being um, in the position where they were the ones that should have had, you know, the edge, you know, they weren't the battle weary um, Rockets. They were the number one seed. They kind of breezed through most of it. When they did face that adversity, um, you know, from this upstart Rockets team in terms of just playing with a lot more fight and pop. They did not fade down the stretch. They hung around. They hung around. They made, you know, the game close and had key rallies to kind of bring it back in when the Rockets did kind of run away with it for moments here and there. It was very solid. Uh, and that was one thing I had notes for, too. Like, you would have thought that the Spurs were kind of the underdog in the way that, yeah, they're outmatched or they're being outmatched, but they're still doing their, you know, their part and playing with their effort. Um, even Dennis Rodman, although, you know, his effort and energy was spotty, was up and in there, you know, and, and fighting and competing. And that was one thing you'd like to see. They made every game, I mean, not that any game wasn't worth watching, but there wasn't a part where it's like, oh, the Rocks are on a 12 0 run and here the Spurs are going to fold like you, you know, know some teams that we've watched in the past will do. Um, the Spurs were not that team. Absolutely. And uh, San Antonio actually, about halfway through the fourth quarter, took a two point edge at 82 to 80. But that man, Big Shot Bob, coming up with some more big plays. He had a drive and a couple of threes to spark a 12-3 run. And that put up that put Houston up 7, 92-85 with under five minutes to play. Ori finishing the game with 21 points. But uh, another thing that I noticed in the fourth quarter 
was that, and, and, and part of it could be that, uh, you know, he attempted those three threes of the first quarter, but Rodman hasn't really played in the, in this fourth period of game two. Yeah, that was something, I mean, it was like Bob Hill had moments of frustration where he was just like, hey, we're just going to run different people. And I don't know how that felt for, you know, I didn't watch enough Spurs games regular season or find enough to kind of see what the rotation was. I imagine that Rodman played a lot more of an impactful role than giving, you know, GRE um, heavier minutes than normal and maybe going more of Willie Anderson after having him not appear um, that much, if at all, in game one. Um, I don't remember being a fact. I definitely got to check and make sure if he did or did not. Um, no, he played one minute in game one. He went from playing one minute in game one to 27 big ones in game two. And, um, you know, while he was semi-effective, I mean, he got some shots up, uh, 6.5 rebounds, 5 assists. It was jarring to see Rodman go from heavy minutes to just 17 and like you said, down the stretch, realizing that maybe that wasn't exactly the Spurs' ideal plan of attack, but mainly caused by whatever friction and disruption Rodden was causing with Bob Hill to kind of make the judgment call there for better or for worse. Yeah, there was a lot of talk from the announcers uh, in this game and throughout the series in regards to Rob Rodman that I just completely disagreed with. For one, there. They, they said on numerous occasions that because the Spurs were trailing for a good portion of this game, they needed to keep Rodman on the bench for offensive purposes. But, you know, you look at this game, uh, in Game 1 with Rodman playing a, a good chunk of it, they held the Rockets to 94. In Game 2, when he plays 17 minutes, the Rockets finish with 106. Um, you know, so the... The, there, there often is this fallacy in the league that, like, because a guy, a guy is a maybe a more of a, a one-way player, that he's not going to impact the game in certain situations. But I just think Dennis Rodman was one of their best players, and he needed to be out there at all times. Yeah, I agree. I don't even think it was really any contest, unfortunately. Uh, and it's kind of weird that that was something that wasn't seen um, as important. Because you're right. Oh, just because I'm. Uh, just because I'm a, a, a one-sided player, that my versatility isn't important and that you can't see how, how much of an impact I can be on one side. And really, that might have been one of uh, Hill's uh, great failings in this series. Uh, I, I there was a few things I wasn't exactly a fan of. Um, personnel or personality, um, you know, with Rodman and the team being one thing. But just in terms of using that personnel and understand, okay, maybe you're right, Rodman's not an offensive factor, even though at times he may think that he is. But how we can best um, utilize him make him less of a non-factor on offense, which I didn't feel like he was being played off the court or anything on the offensive end. And just him being such a terror on the glass made him someone to put a body on regardless, which in and of itself was his own weapon for the Spurs offensive utilized positively. But you're right, like, I don't know. And I'm watching replay, you know, while he did play solid, I don't really understand what he brought that was more than Rodman. Yes, he was more offensively inclined, but that doesn't necessarily mean he was more effective, and I would argue that he wasn't. Yeah, and again, that, that rebounding, the defensive rebounding for Rodman and, and getting them out and running, I think, was, was a big boost. I think the Spurs were playing at the, at their best moments in this series was when they were playing fast and, and getting out and running and, and dominating the boards. But, you know, without Rodman out there on the floor in the fourth, the, the Spurs just could not stop the Rockets. Sam Cassell hitting a big three in the final two minutes off of a double team from Hakeem. And then Houston up five with a minute left. You know, again, as you mentioned, the Spurs always kept fighting in this series. But with Houston up five with a minute left, Hakeem faces up Robinson and hits a pull-up 15-footer. And that was really the ball game at that point. Hakeem ended up finishing with 
41-41 in the Game 2 victory, and the Rockets take both on the road. Yeah, that was a shocker. I couldn't imagine how Spurs feel leaving that one, because you're right, that, that shot literally, you could sense it, especially you know, if you watch a lot of basketball, even if not, like that was the dagger on the cap it off, even more so than the Cassell shot, which I really thought was the backbreaker for the Spurs. It felt like going down the stretch, the Rockets were hitting all of their threes, you know, especially in that last final frame, you know, where, okay, need a big one, boom, they got it again. Need another one, boom, they're going to keep you at bay, and they were really just closing the lid. Each time the Spurs kind of pushed up a little bit, boom, another one, boom, another one. And it, it was it was kind of funny. I mean, the Spurs, don't, I mean, the Rockets only hit nine threes in that game, but I felt like four of them, it felt like we're in the final, like, five minutes. Yeah, absolutely. They, they hit not only, uh, you know, uh, big shots, but, yeah, timely shots as well. So Houston up two games to none going home. It looks like, you know, this series is all but over. Thanks so much for listening to Duncan Dynasty. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, you can uh, you can subscribe to the program on iTunes. If you can leave a, uh, a rating and review, that would be greatly appreciated as well. Uh, the show is also now on Spotify. Uh, if you can uh, give the show a follow, again, a rating on there, uh, that, uh, that really helps a lot. If, uh, if you've got any uh, questions or comments or, uh, or ideas for, uh, for future episodes, uh, you can contact me. Uh, on Twitter, at Garrett Bouguet, and also uh, my email is g-bouguet at onu.edu. So uh, feel free to, uh, to uh, give me any of your uh, ideas. I, I love to hear from, uh, from the people listening to the program. And uh, enjoy the next week of the NBA calendar, and uh, have a great rest of your day. Leftovers. Or... The DMV. Number 97. Or. House cleaning. Or. Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. Woodwork prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details.